this idea, right, of passive versus active conservation that, that you're interested in, right? It's this, this passive way of, uh, yeah, cordoning off nature and keeping people out. But uh, in terms of the research that we do in my lab, it's definitely more in that category of active conservation. Um, we do active conservation research to address those threats by testing recovery actions and testing mitigation strategies with science to say this can work or this can't work. Welcome to Rebalancing Act. We are Kieran Waterhouse and Leslie Ann St. Timor, two law grads and friends. Thank you so much for joining us today. We know the climate crisis is here and that we have to solve it. So every two weeks, we talk about how we can get there. Today, Leslie Ann and Professor Jackie Litzkis of Laurentian University talk about their deep and abiding love of turtles, conservation, and how we can all be a friend to Canada's wildlife. Plus this week on Climate Allies, we discuss mangroves and condo developers. Before we get into the main content of this episode, we want to address the violence currently happening in Nova Scotia. A Mi'kmaq community in Nova Scotia launched its own Mi'kmaq-regulated lobster fishery after having their rights to fish for a moderate livelihood confirmed by the Supreme Court of Canada in 1999. Non-Indigenous fishermen have reacted with violence and threats due to an alleged concern for conservation. However, there are approximately 350 Mi'kmaq traps and over 300,000 commercial traps. And the feeling that the Mi'kmaq fishery is unregulated is false. It is simply regulated by Mi'kmaq governance rather than the federal government. To support the Mi'kmaq in this battle for their rights, you can find a document with information on where to donate, templates for writing to elected officials, where to get more information, and a wish list of needs for the people on the front lines, all in our show notes. And now for Jackie. Would you like to introduce yourself, tell our listeners a little bit about what you do? Sure. I'm a professor at Laurentian University up in Sudbury, Ontario, and my research is focusing mostly on the ecology and conservation of reptiles, with most of the focus on freshwater turtles. Um, and I guess the, coal, the whole goal of my research program is to collect really solid, good scientific data that can be used to be the evidence to inform decisions about protection and recovery and mitigation of threats for species at risk, species that are in trouble. Can you tell us a little bit? I think just in general, turtles demand respect. And I mean, I've been intrigued by turtles. I grew up catching, they've always gathered my interest, but you know, I think they demand respect because they're a feat of evolutionary ingenuity, right? That shell and there's, you know, their, their whole body form has changed. I mean, their rib, the shell is their ribs, right? So now they're like, where their arms attach is inside their ribs instead of outside their ribs like it is for us, right? Like, I mean, this whole, the whole body plan has changed. And it's been like that for like 230 million years. I mean, think about that, 230 million years. And then if you take it down a scale, big scale, and you think about an individual turtle, an individual turtle can live for over 100 years. So just think about that one female snapping turtle in Algonquin Park and what she has seen. You know, it's just, so to me, it's just instantly, it, they demand respect and their appearance is just so unusual and so all these reasons so um in the long-term study now in this 49th year of data collection we have captured and marked about 1900 different painted turtles and uh, over 1100 different snapping turtles so that a lot that's individuals that's not just numbers of captures and seeing the same turtles over again that's different individuals I collaborate on running this long-term turtle project with Dr. Ron Brooks, who's a professor emeritus from the University of Guelph, and he started the project. And then when he retired, I, I stepped in to help and take care of the project. And then also Dr. Niall Rawlinson from the University of Toronto is also helping. So we have a 
the group of us continuing with this work. So we have graduate students from both Laurentian University and University of Toronto that are working on the project. Those students get to go in the field and they get to follow the turtles around and see these individuals who they've seen, you know, some of these turtles that Dr. Brooks caught in the 1970s, they still come up at nest. These girls still come up onto the sand at the dam and they still lay their eggs. And it's just amazing to reconnect with those individuals year after year. But another interesting piece of having long data like that, long-term data, is that somebody goes MIA for a few years. Like, so you miss seeing some turtles and then you're worried, oh my goodness, maybe they've died something. And then they show up again. You're like, oh, where have you been? You know? In 2019, so last field, two field seasons, well, last field season, there were seven painted turtles that were captured who had actually been missing in action for over 10 years. So these, these turtles were missing and then all of a sudden, you know, they were back again and that's seven turtles. And so that was pretty interesting because in all the previous years, there hadn't been that many MIA turtles in a single season show up again. And there was one of those turtles that had been gone for 19 years. So, you know, the assumption was that she had died, but turtle K10 showed up again and everybody was happy to see her, right? Welcome back to the study. Where have you been for 19 years? Do you have any favorite stories about trying to uh, catch turtles or tag turtles or looking for turtles? Well, actually, so I wanted to mention one turtle who's sort of special from the Algonquin Park study. And he, he died a while ago, but he's just, he's kind of neat. So he's this great big male snapping turtle and his, his tag was Y11. And he was named Bert. And he was named Bert after Bert Reynolds because he was so incredibly handsome. He was like a, a main guy who lived in the main lake right there at the research station. And so, you know, he was in lots of like media things, you know, CBC, television, uh, video, kind of thing, you know what I mean? Like, you know, and he was also, uh, you know, such a part of the study. You could, the researchers would go out in the canoe on Lake Sasajewin where the station is, and they could tap on the canoe with their paddle and Bert would come swimming up to say hi, get a treat, you know, like, like he, he became, you know, kind of friendly with them. Um, unfortunately, he died in 2002, and he was estimated to be like 70 years old at that point when he died. And um, Dr. Ron Brooks, who did start this project, has a, a special affection in his heart for Bert. And when Bert um, died, Dr. Brooks actually wrote this sort of obituary that was a tribute to Bert. So it's kind of a fun story to um, to think about him and, and uh, his participation in the, in the project for a long period of time. And he was kind of the star, you know. He, and like the relationship that everyone got to build with him too. Yeah, in the obituary, Dr. Brooks talks about how Bert danced on a log with Kathy Shilton, who was another one of the researchers. You know, just this sort of funny way of describing the interactions with this turtle. I'm going to have to keep an eye out next time I'm in the park because I've definitely seen some, some gorgeous, bigger than a basketball sized snappers out there. So a lot of people think of conservation as cordoning off an area, we leave it be, we don't go there. But that's not the only way conservation can happen. And what you just said about how that big turtle provided an opportunity for people to have this memory of the turtle they saw and a little bit of an interaction, I think, is part of this as well. Because when we cordon off nature and conservation, people don't have those experiences. Could you talk to us a little bit about the different kind of forms of conservation that can exist and maybe some of the pros and cons of some of them? This idea, right, of passive versus active conservation that, that you're interested in, right? It's this, 
this passive way of, uh, yeah, cordoning off nature and keeping people out. But uh, in terms of the research that we do in my lab, it's definitely more in that category of active conservation. Um, you know, because the, the work that we're trying to do is addresses specific threats to turtles. Turtles as a group are one of the most endangered groups of animals on the planet, right? They're in big trouble. Of the 350 so species on the planet, like two thirds of them are considered at risk of extinction. So they're in trouble. And the main threats, of course, habitat destruction, which is true for any animal or plant that's in decline. Road mortality is a big deal for turtles. Collection for the pet and the food trades is also a big deal for turtles. And then excessive predation, like too much predation, you know, predation of nests beyond what the population can handle, and then predation of adults, which is, of course, a really big problem. And so we try to do active conservation research to address those threats by testing recovery actions and testing mitigation strategies with science to say, this can work or this can't work to do that action. So for example, you know, the, the passive way of setting habitat aside, there's certainly benefits to that, but wouldn't it be better if we could take an active approach and actually quantify the habitats that are needed? Like, what are the critical habitats needed by this animal and how much of that critical habitat does it need? So, for example, critical habitats include things like nesting sites. Obviously, the population can't persist if a female doesn't have anywhere to lay her eggs, right? Or uh, hibernation sites. And this is especially true for you know, Northern Ontario, Algonquin Park area, where over half the life of the animal is spent in hibernation. So obviously that's a very, you know, we don't often think about that. We think about our summer adventures going outside and stuff. But these animals deal with winter conditions for half their lives. And that's a really important piece of habitat then for them so they can survive. So for active habitat protection, again, I think it's important to collect data to, to quantify what these critical habitats are, to map them, and then to say, okay, if we're going to plan a nature preserve or the flip side, if we're going to plan a development, you know, maybe some kind of forestry actions or some development of another kind, then we can say, don't do it here because this is where the critical habitat is for these animals. So that to me is a more active way to preserve habitats. Um, and so I've had graduate students who have done that exact kind of work. Um, another one to be like for road mortality, right? The problem of road mortality. So we can, we can deploy fencing to keep animals off the road that then funnels them to culverts or eco passages that allows them to safely get under the road, which then connects the habitats that have been fragmented by the road. But and we've done research on this too. We've done it, several different projects about this. And what we have learned that is, is that a faulty fence makes the whole system fail. So you need a good solid fence to track those animals to the eco passages that you want them to use. Because if there's a hole in the fence, they'll take it. These, think about turtles, if they live for a hundred years, that female has been making the same nesting migration every year for like 80 years. And then suddenly we stick a, a road in the way, she's still gonna try to get across like she's always done. So if there's a hole in that fence, she'll take it. And then she gets trapped on the rocks inside. So we have quantified that if you're gonna build it, you gotta build it right. You know, so there's a, another active conservation action. Um, in terms of the threat of pet trade, that one's a little bit harder to, uh, like, for us to do science on, but at least I think more resources need to be invested into conservation officers and also education to, to tackle that. Threat. And then the predation threat, we've actually, we've, we've tried to do some active conservation around that aspect in a few different ways. Um, one of them is, you know, people, you've, people have probably seen this, you put a cage over top of a turtle nest to keep the predators out. And we know that that really works. If you build a good cage, it will keep the predators out. But we were wondering if we're causing any trouble for the babies developing in those eggs when we stick a nest over top because it would shade it and it might do other things. 
So we tested three different types of nest cages. And the really great news, our science says that that doesn't impact the babies developing. So that's great news, right? We don't have, yeah, we can protect the babies from predators and the babies are going to be fine and they can get out and everything will be good. Having put the cages over turtle nests, that makes me feel better that they are okay. And we thought that was a really important question because it's really easy to do these sort of, um, you know, quick solutions. Let's put a cage on and get the predators out. But then if the animal is going to live, if, if the baby successfully hatches, you know, it lives for 100 years, we want to make sure it's a good quality baby, so to speak, right, as it grows up. So we tested that. And, it, and there's good news. We've also done things like um, build artificial nest sites. So females, you know, they'll cross roads, back to the road problem, right? She'll cross the road to find a nest site. So we build artificial nest sites in places that could intercept females before they got to the road to say, if you build it, will she come? And the answer is yes, she will. And her babies will develop just as well as in the places that she picked. But the, the key there, what we found by, again, doing real science is that you have to put the nesting mounds in the right place so that she will find them. Sorry, mom, if you're listening, you're now going to have a sand and gravel mound in your backyard for the turtles. She Her yard backs onto a wetland in Kingston, and it's not at all uncommon for us to find snappers and painted turtles in the backyard, in the driveway, trying to cross the road. I have spent more than one morning sitting in a uh, lawn chair with my cup of coffee, watching the snapper that's trying to lay her eggs in the neighbor's yard and then slowly shooing off like the little boys who come to look and they want to learn and that's fine. But sometimes they poker or they like poker the stick and try and interfere and I slowly shoo them away and I shoo away the dogs. I'm very passive aggressive with my neighbors when it comes to turtles. (laughs) You are her protective midwife. Basically. Another thing I wanted to talk about that I know you've worked with a little bit is I know that there's been research showing that there's evidence that Indigenous involvement in conservation can make it more effective. I know you've done a little bit of work around this. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I have had the great honor to work with several First Nation communities in the Eastern Georgian Bay area um, and around Sudbury. And um, several of my graduate students, in fact, have worked as species at risk biologists in First Nation communities. So that's been a great way for us to connect with the community. So, and yes, I think that this, this weaving of indigenous knowledge and experiences with Western science, it's results in, a, of course, a much more holistic approach. Um, to land conservation as a whole. And so um, one of the projects we're working on now actually is, so I've talked about road, this road mortality problem, that's, that field of science is called road ecology. But one of the things we're starting to work on now is railroad ecology, because we're finding that railroads are also you know, linear features that go through the landscape and have an impact on the wildlife. And so um, one of the projects that we're working on uh, with um, two of the First Nation communities in Eastern Georgian Bay is, has evolved from initially having conversations with community members who have noted different animals being struck by the rail, by the train on the railway. And so we began with interviews of, of people in the communities to say, what are you noticing? You know, what is the impact? And what do you asking those questions? And once we gathered all that survey information, then we were able to say, okay, we need to focus our Western science approaches in these places um, because the the elders and the community members have identified this important thing at that place. Let's work together to to collect some data now and turn this into a, a research project as well. And so we had this great partnership. That's so interesting. I never thought about railways. It's quite fascinating because 
railways tend to go through more wild spaces than a, than a road does in some respects, right? Because they're much narrower and so they can cut through. This project that we're working on, um, on the railways, it's not just usually, I, you know, I focus on turtles or snakes kind of thing, but this is on everything. We're talking about the amphibians. We're talking about the large mammals like the moose that are hit, which of course are really important to First Nation communities, the bear that are hit. Um, we're also finding medium-sized mammals that are getting hit. We found fox and such as well. You know, so we're finding this whole gamut of, of animals that are being impacted and birds as well. So it's a really, like I said, this holistic approach. Um, and we're, we're weaving together these two approaches to try and uh, really understand what's happening on the landscape because of railways. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to describe it, that weaving together of the two approaches. Because I find sometimes when you talk to people about including Indigenous knowledge, there's this kind of people feel almost attention. They feel that well, if we're including Indigenous knowledge, does that mean we're not including Western knowledge? Or what if they're in disagreement? But that doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be attention. I think weaving it together and just using the best from both is a really important way to look at it. Absolutely. Yeah. And so particularly now I'm thinking about the trains as I'm going to ask you this, how would you explain the value of conservation work to people who aren't like us and that they don't necessarily see the inherent value in turtles and other critters? And I'm thinking now, I wonder if this may be not at where you're at in that project, but I'm thinking about the railroad companies, for example, like they, do they see the value in doing this kind of work or is it, you know, it doesn't slow us down so we don't care. Like how would you have that conversation with somebody? It's always a challenging one. So in the context of the railway project that is just starting, I will say that the rail company meets the student every week to provide the safety net while the student, you know, the, the, it's called the flagger, is there in their vehicle and partners with us for that day so that the student can do the survey along the railway. They're totally on board with that. I didn't mean to throw the railway companies, you know, under the bus there, but just using them as an example. <laughs> Your question is so important because it really depends who you're talking to. You know, like you said, you and I, we have this inherent love of turtles, right? It's something about them and we just, you know, so we, we don't need to explain why we think it's important. But if you want to make arguments to different people, right, you have to gauge who the audience is. So during my PhD work, I was radio tracking spotted turtles and I was working on an Audubon Nature Conservancy Sanctuary. But of course, the turtles don't recognize those bear, those boundaries, right? So one of my turtles with a radio transmitter had wandered off into private land and it was a tree plantation. So the director of the Audubon Society took me to meet those landowners so that I could ask permission, of course, to go on their land to track my turtle. The Audubon director, he went with the husband and went and had a conversation about stuff. And then I was sitting with the wife in her living room. And very aggressively, she said to me, why does it matter? You know, why Why should I let you on my land to go find that turtle? Like, what's the value of that turtle? Threw me on the spot. I'm just this young student. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what do I say? You know, but it's something that sticks in my mind, obviously. And I thought about it a lot. And, and, and again, depending on who you're talking to, you have to think about how you might explain the value of turtles in another way besides their inherent awesomeness. So one of the things that I think is important is, is their role in biodiversity and they're integral to biodiversity. So turtles, if you want to talk about it in a sort of ecosystem services way, you know, so that's one of the things is that turtles are, they play a vital role in, in energy transfer between terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems back and forth, right? The turtle eggs. 
that do get eaten by predators. And that's okay. Some turtle eggs can get eaten by predators. The population's okay. But that means that energy transfers to that, you know, next level in the ecosystem. And then when they're, when they're digging in the sand, you know, some of the energy that goes in that dig, whatever, you know. And then there's also, um, turtles are seed dispersers. So when a turtle eats fruits or plants and then it walks somewhere else and it poops, it drops the seed, it disperses that plant. Um, so that's really important. There's another um, set of studies that have shown the importance of turtles for cleaning water systems. So for example, you know, fish kills. If you have a massive fish, fish kill and you have turtles in the system to clean up and eat the fish, it purifies the water. So if you want to put that even one extent further and talk about this sort of a new term I learned last week is nature capital, you know, so there's ecosystem services. And then there's this other term that's this nature capital about, you know, money it goes down to finances. So having turtles clean up your fish kill is much less expensive than some other human intervention that might require, you know, some other aspect to do it. So there's, it, depending on who you're talking to, you might tell them these different ways that turtles matter. But another, I think, important one from a, a biodiversity perspective, too, is that turtles have been called umbrella species. And that if you protect a turtle, then you protect, it acts as an umbrella to that ecosystem because the consequences, we talked about collateral damage and downstream consequences before. When you protect them, you protect so much other stuff. And so you use, you know, the Blanding's turtle, for example, as your poster sort of child of protection. And then when you protect that population of Blanding's turtles, you protect all the ecosystem functioning in there and you maintain that overall ecosystem integrity. I'm a scuba diver. And so in my world, in my personal life, something we spend a lot of time doing is trying to trying to convince divers to report their sightings of endangered species. And I think it's something that they often don't really care to do because they don't see the value of their doing that. But I think framing it as nature capital in that, you know, these endangered species are something exciting to see. They'll, they can bring more divers to the area if people know they're there. And kind of framing it in that way can be really helpful. That's right. People love to make lifeless, right? So... Yeah. You offer that as a, uh, oh, you could see your lifeless species. Come dive here. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And so we've talked a little bit about um, not only the value of this work in terms of conservation, but going back a little bit to the long-term aspects of the studies. Have you started to see the impacts of climate change in your work? I know you mentioned a little bit about the nesting time of turtles. Are there any other impacts you're seeing or even is it impacting the way you're able to do your work? That's a, actually, that's a really good question about does it impact the way we're able to do our work? And in some ways, in just a logistical fashion, it does, because it used to be that, you know, the university semester would end in the beginning of April, and then we would transition to field season. But now, field season is starting a bit earlier. It makes it really hard because there's lots of things happening at once. And so I'm trying to finish my teaching and marketing and everything for the semester, but also at the same time, trying to get my grad students trained to get out in the field and do what they need to do. So that's presents a bit of a logistical challenge um, in, in some place. You know, there's so much work that, work that can be done. We have this, this incredible long-term data set from Algonquin Park, and we're, we're only scratching the surface and starting to look at these patterns that are in the data over time. And so we've just started with that nesting timing stuff, but there's so much more that we can do there, and we're working on it. It's just not out there. It's something that I'm really interested in. I read a piece that I think actually came out of the research center. I might be wrong it was looking at the climate modeling of Algonquin Park over the next, I think it was up until 2050, if I remember right. And one of the big things they talked about was ice out and how that's already being shown to be happening earlier and earlier. 
And so that's something I think about a lot now when thinking about conservation work is how will that change along with these impacts that are already being seen. So one of the things about the ice out situation that um, I think about with respect to turtles is that turtles do, of course, hibernate in wetlands and they have that cap of ice over top. And then if the ice melts sooner than it used to, I, I this is just a prediction that I worry about kind of thing, is that turtles may come out too early in the spring and turtles can handle being in that wetland over the winter because there's a very stable water temperature, right? It's about plus one to plus three degrees Celsius in there and they're totally fine. But if they come out too soon in the spring, but then we still have these fluctuations that climate change predicts, that nighttime temperatures might go down really low and they might get caught out of the wetland and freeze. So I worry about that. I worry about this mismatching of of behaviors with climate that might happen as a result of these changes in ice out, ice on and ice out, and what the what the signals are that turtles are getting, you know, from the sky or whatever it is, and temperatures um, coming through the ice, and then the ice isn't there. It's, it's, for me, again, it's all sort of speculative stuff. I think about it, and I worry about. We talked a little bit about citizen science already, but what are there? What are other things that the general public can do to? aid in conservation and uh, protection of species at risk in general, as well as if you have any thoughts specific to turtles. A specific turtle one, of course, is helping turtles across the room. So, you know, you, you, especially at certain times of the year, right, there's a spring migration of turtles, there's a nesting migration of turtles, and then there's a fall migration again as turtles move back to hibernation sites. And so we tend to see turtles on the roads during that time. And so if it's safe to pull over and help that turtle across the road, simply carry it across the road in the direction it was going, I will add to that a very important point about not relocating the turtle, you know, to your cottage or your camp where you have a beautiful pond. Don't do that because the turtle will be lost. So carry it across. It knows what it's doing. It's been doing it for probably 50 years. So just help it across in the direction it was going. So that's one like very, you know, pointed thing that people can do to help. Can you confirm for any listeners that it is not true that a snapping turtle can bite off your finger? No, but... A snapping turtle on land is frightened, and so it will try to defend itself. And if you're trying to help a snapping turtle across the room, it will often turn around and snap at you. And you're saying to this turtle, I am trying to help you. You know, I'm trying to get you across. So that can also, of course, be a bit of a nerve-wracking situation. So what you can do if you have a coat or a blanket in your car, just throw that over the turtle's head and then carry it across. And then it won't try to snap on you, right? Just, you know, cover its head and, and it'll be calmer, and then you can carry it across. Or use the... Um, the floor mat from your car and sort of put it up, scooch it onto the floor mat and then drag it across the road, but never pick up a snapping turtle by its tail. I mean, people think that they can do that because it keeps their hands away from the head of the turtle, but you can dislocate its vertebrae, right? That tail, it's that's its vertebral column. So if you're holding a very heavy turtle by its tail, you might cause some trouble there. So don't do that. Um, and smaller species, of course, are much easier to pick up and carry across. Snappers can be harder, but it's still possible. And they will not bite off your finger. Worst case scenario, that will not happen, everybody. They might pee on you. Well, that, they will do that. And they will also, snappers will musk you and woof, it smells. But, you know, then they, they're doing that because they view you as a predator and they're trying to get you to leave them alone. Especially because that turtle's probably twice as old as you and telling you, leave me alone, right? Another specific thing people could do is related to the citizen science idea is to report like back to your diving example, report things that they see. And so, for example, the Toronto Zoo has a turtle tally that you can report sightings to. And then there's iNaturalist, you know, other things like that. So that's a great thing to do as well is to report those sightings. Um, I would say um, another sort of bigger picture things that can be done, is, well, vote. Take action and vote for politicians who care about the environment and who care about our Endangered Species Act. And then 
you know, donating to reputable conservation organizations that actually do grassroots conservation work, but also fund uh, research because, you know, of course, I'm an advocate for evidence based decision making, especially in, in a conservation context, but that work does cost money. And if it's a reputable organization that's supporting good, solid science, that's the best way to make good decisions. What you've learned, tell it to people, share that information, share that knowledge and tell them why it matters, like get that message out. And I would say one of the most important things is for all of us to get outside, take our kids outside and build a nature empathy. So we, you know, we protect the things that we love. And so our kids are the next ones who are taking care of this planet. So we need to get them outside and make them fall in love with turtles. And then we'll be okay. I think that's a great way to put it. And in terms of the Algonquin Wildlife Research Station, I believe you said you're a nonprofit now. Is there a way that folks who are listening, if they're so inclined, could support that organization? Absolutely. We do accept donations. And if we have also a a Patreon donation system too, where you can give a little bit each month by becoming a patron. Um, but yes, on our uh, website, there is a, a information there about how to donate to them. Now I just want to go catch turtles. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jackie, for joining us for this. This was such a fun conversation for me to have on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> I had a great time too. Thank you so much. We so appreciate Jackie coming on the show to speak to Leslie Ann and tell us all about the incredible work that she and the Algonquin Wildlife Research Station do. If you want to learn more about the AWRS, you can find them online and on social media with links in our show notes. They're a nonprofit, and so if you liked hearing about the work that Jackie does, consider supporting them by becoming a member of their Patreon or with a one-time donation, each of which can be done on their website. And now, Leslie Ann and I discuss. So tell me your thoughts about this interview. I think like my own nature empathy has been something that's being built over time. And like I had great exposure to nature as a kid. I think that, you know, I probably had above average opportunities to go camping with my family and to interact with the outdoors. I even wonder if, though, I wish I'd known more about what I was interacting with. I think like the education paired with experience is such a powerful driver of empathy. I think that's really, really true, especially because I've spent a lot of time in scuba diving communities in particular, where there are some people who scuba dive because it's an extreme sport and it's a way to push yourself to the limit and go places other people can't go. And there's other people who dive because they love the water and want to see the fish and the coral and experience that and be close to that part of nature. And I think it's really important that just because you have like, I think you're really right in that just because you have exposure to nature and the environment doesn't mean you necessarily develop that empathy. Yeah, and knowing the answers to those questions isn't just useful for the protection of others. I think it enhances one's own life. That really reminds me of um, outdoor branding and the culture of like outdoor climbing and rock climbing specifically. And it's been historically, I think, such a male and like white dominated culture and that's changing now. But all of this language is about conquering, being the first person to climb the tallest peak, to do this hardest thing, to have these feats of bravery. What do these reveal about the human soul and I think that layered in this they you know layered in this narrative but we don't say explicitly is that uh they're doing these things because of the beauty of nature and you know there's all of this element of preserving nature I think that the outdoor community is becoming more concerned about climate change and is like advocating for it more but it hasn't been historically I think part of the culture you know drawing this point back to conservation I think conservation and understanding it is something that can make the outdoor community and these pursuits less egocentric 
because the pursuit of the self and on one's own ability to endure and to climb and to walk and everything else is, you know, such an egocentric thing to do. And I think if we bring, you know, if we like have these more holistic understandings of what other things are there with us, what other things are enabling the natural landscape to be this beautiful and to thrive. And we even, um, you even talked about in your interview, like all of these ancillary benefits that turtles have and how helping turtles thrive also has very direct benefits. If uh, we're going to make the selfish argument for having humans thrive too. Being invested in the conservation of an area that you want to explore, I think, is really essential. Absolutely. And I think what's really interesting about conservation is, unlike climate science, it's something that has a much longer history of acceptance within our academic institutions and within our government and policymakers. And I mean, sometimes the science in conservation wasn't correct in the old days, to be clear. I'm not saying that just because it was science-based, that every conservation decision that's been made is still correct, because we always are gathering new information. But I think it's really interesting when you look at some of the long-term studies, for example, that are happening in Algonquin Park, like the turtle studies and the small mammal study, because that's a source of evidence that has been running and being generated since the 70s that is already showing evidence of climate change. So while in parts of the world we're still fighting over whether or not is climate change real, is it human-caused, are we actually feeling effects, there's recognized scientific research that is already showing the evidence of these effects. It's just happening in a pocket that isn't synonymous with climate change. And so I think this conservation research is so important because not only does it show us the effects of climate change, it can show us how species are starting to adapt or not adapt, which can not only inform our conservation efforts, but I think it's really important to look at and understand for ourselves and for our own benefit and the benefit of other species going forward as well. Definitely. I really enjoyed, um, you know, I think we need to be putting more and more time and effort into these practices. As Jackie mentioned, she mentioned, you know, the importance of funding and also how funding sort of increases one's ability to do active conservation projects as well as passive conservation projects. If you wanted to um, touch on that a little bit, I thought that that was so interesting and sort of the next step that conservation should be taking. And I think, you know, scientists want to take if the resource are there for them to take it. Yeah, I know you and I have talked about this framework before of active conservation versus passive because a lot of people solely think of conservation as fencing off an area, no one touching it, and that's our way of conserving it. But with active conservation, you have so many more options because you can actually test whether or not aspects of conservation are working. And I think that's so important, especially going forward, because our entire world is changing with climate change and things that worked before for conservation may not continue to work and we're going to need new ideas. And so I think it's more important than ever that we continue to fund scientists doing this research and provide them with the funding to try new things and be creative and be out on the ground actually learning what works and what doesn't because it's one of those things that there's no better time than now like this is information we need now and we can get now so why are we waiting why are we not providing the necessary resources for this Definitely. I also really like that the narrative and concept of active conservation pushes against the separation of humans from nature. You know, I think the Anthropocene is a trendy topic right now. And you always see, for example, Anthropocene on photo of mine or on photo of oil sands, etc. On photo of plastic strewn beach. But the fingerprint of humans on the places that they live has been going on for about as long as humans have existed. And a lot of the things that we think of 
as untouched have still been, the, you know, imprinted by the human fingerprint in ways sometimes that we think are beneficial but are actually detrimental to the natural environment. Like, for example, California. When you look around at California's uh, environment, a lot of it's uh, a lot of it's like been controlled by humans in ways that are maybe aesthetic, but are actually not what it's supposed to look like and have been shown to be to its detriment. So I think that if we take away this idea that we just need to step back from the places that surround us or even run away from them when the going gets tough, that we need to actually be managing and nurturing them constantly. And we can do that in ways that make us act as a keystone species to improve the health of the environment is really key. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting was the conversation Jackie and I had about the turtle nesting spots that they've created within the park, uh, particularly in areas where traditionally turtles would have to cross a road in order to access where they like to nest. And so these biologists have gone out and created ideal nesting sites in places where those turtles who would normally be heading to cross that road would hit those ideal nesting spots before they get to the road. And that's the kind of thing that we can do and we can create in nature without causing too significant of an impact uh, to other species and create these opportunities for umbrella species and important species like turtles to continue to thrive. I wasn't joking in the interview that I'm gonna help my mom build a turtle nesting site in her backyard. We've already talked about it several times now. And that's something anyone who lives in a place where turtles are crossing their property to find a nesting spot could do if they want to help help protect those turtles and help put those turtles in a position where they don't have to cross a road, for example. So there are even ways we can leave our fingerprints all over nature in a way that's an added benefit for nature, not just for us. I think it's time for something a little bit this week for Climate Allies, what I really want to talk about is condo developers. Okay, and mangroves, mostly the mangroves. I think it's really, really fascinating. Well, one, mangroves are fascinating. But I think it's interesting how there's such an incredible and interesting ecosystem but they're often seen as not particularly valued or desired. And when you look at the way coastal regions have used many of their coastlines for building condos and hotels and things like that, often it means removing mangroves and changing the shoreline because people want beaches, which I get. I love a beach as much as the next person. But mangroves are wild. Mangroves can raise seat like the shore level where they are mangroves can stop surf they can protect these buildings from storms and from flooding and like all the little critters that live in them and who doesn't love to get up in the morning and have their coffee on their balcony and just see a nice heron fly by or maybe a fish jump or a pelican swoop and like scoop up a nice big fish and maybe he drops the fish and then you laugh because you saw a fish fly but that's not a flying fish I want mangroves to be the desired shoreline for condos and hotels because from a practical perspective, they benefit those buildings so much by protecting them and acting as a climate adaptation measure and mitigation measure measure from the effects of climate change. And they're an aesthetic I can get behind. I'm into it. Thanks for listening to our show. Tune in next week to find out about solar pump an aesthetic, a community, and movement dedicated to reimagining what we can actually achieve if we think about the future. Not as Victorian grunge where everyone is sad and wears leather, but as a place where we achieve our dreams. A solar punk attitude can enrich the lives of anyone and is a climate solution, including you. See you in two weeks.